All right, try to be as quiet as you can. What? I know, it's fine. No, you're going to have to wait till after this is over with. You're fine. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I am. I am alive. Did you get the link? Jason, can you grab the link? I think that's the updated link. Yeah, that is the updated link. Cool. Hey, what's up, guys? What's up, Jace? Hey. Hello. Salutations. Hello, Hello. Governor. We're going to be uh, we're going to be reading out the questions, so if everyone can just go on mute um, during the duration, and right. we, may, we may have like a follow-up thing. You know, Chase can stick around afterwards, so you can, we can maybe open it up. Chava, that means you too. <laughs> what? But me and Chase are practically married. Practically, you know? Like, definitely. Like, like, intimately, apparently. Cool. Yeah, sure. What do you got for me, Alex? So that's basically the attitude between the hero, the parent, the child, the inferior nemesis, like all of those different attitudes, basically, which is according to Dr. John Beebe, uh, I believe. Uh, one of his books, he explains uh, the different attitudes to the cognitive functions and how, uh, you know, they kind of have these little mini archetypes attached to them and then they behave uh, similarly, you know, to those archetypes. Like, for example, the parent function is, while it's innately pessimistic, it's very responsible. It's very responsible with uh, its decision making and it cares about responsibility even higher. Why? It's because it's trying to protect the child. Whereas the child function is more, it's childish, but it's also known as a divine child. It's where a person's divinity exists or where their uh, um, innocence basically exists. Uh, so like I have Effie child, so I'm super innocent in wanting to give balloons and candy to everybody, as I say often, uh, and actually like really make them feel good and uh, make them feel cared about, even though I'm a soulless husk that lacks uh, moral principles because I have Effie trickster. So like my humanity is being sucked away in a black hole vortex. So 
all you have to do to really understand, you know, which cognitive functions are which slot, you just have to memorize the type grid basically with all the cognitive functions and which slot into each of the different uh, 16 types. And then you just have to find the top two and you could do that through interaction styles multiplied by temperaments. And then, okay, you all of a sudden know their function stack and you know what attitudes they're going to be in. So it's not exactly the most useful thing to try to identify, uh, you know, specifically the cognitive functions with their attitudes first. It's usually better to do the interaction styles times the temperaments. However, there are situations though where you find yourself like not able to identify somebody from, uh, uh, you know, temperament actually. Uh, and to be fair, that's kind of my fault because I forgot to add uh, the uh, other Berenzian pieces of information uh, in the type grid. The type grid will be edited and republished with those pieces to make it easier for people to identify temperaments right now because it's technically incomplete. And thank God one of the um, uh, members of the audience pointed that out to me because uh, they read Barron's book. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I completely forgot to put that on the grid. My bad. So. If you get in a situation where you can't identify their temperament and you know for a fact that a person is insecure about how other people feel or they have that performance anxiety that INJs have or they never know what they want because they're afraid of wanting the wrong thing, for example, because you can look at the gateway functions, which is the hero, the inferior, the nemesis, and the uh, demon or parasite function. And uh, those are the easiest to identify with people. And you just look at where their fear and their worry is. The inferior function is probably the easiest to identify out of all of them uh, because because they could put that negative slant and you can just throw stimuli out there and kind of find out, oh, hey, you know, oh, so you're insecure about how other people feel. Well, automatically, that means you're an ISTP or uh, an INTP. OK, so is this guy an obvious NT or is he an artisan? Oh, no, he's an artisan. He's an ISTP. So you instantly know their type like that. Uh, and. So, yeah, it, it is kind of useful to know the attitudes of the cognitive functions and identify them in some capacity. But uh, predominantly, it's better to use the type grid to type person, someone. So I believe I answered that question. So what's next? Okay, so NE trickster. So that is ISTPs and ISFPs. It just means they're like the trickster is the unaware function. It's like a it's like a black hole that sucks away whatever it is. It's trying they're trying so hard to uh, have that aspect of cognition in their mind. They're trying so insanely hard to do it, but they just can't. They're trying. In fact, they're trying so well enough that they literally, in some cases, believe. Like I've noted some INTJs with FE trickster who actually believe. They're very good at understanding social norms and whatnot, when in reality is they don't. They don't understand social rules or social nuances in that way. And uh, because, you know, but, but the trickster is so enigmatic that uh, they actually believe that they do, when in reality they don't. So any trickster is really interesting because uh, ISPs specifically, craftsmen and artists, uh, they believe that they understand other people's intentions and that they can read other people's intentions based on what those people are doing with extroverted sensing, right? Well, that's not true. So they end up uh, potentially having conflict or getting into a fight uh, with somebody specifically because, you know, uh, mistaken intentions, right? 
This also can lead them open to cognitive attack or social engineering, especially when you have an ENTP or an ENFP or an INTJ or a uh, uh, INFJ, um, really high NI users uh, that have specific intentions, uh, even NI parents, you could probably say, but it's mostly extroverted intuitives um, that could, that present a problem for the ISPs because it's like the ISP can be manipulated easily by these types uh, and they don't even realize that they're being marionetted by uh, ENPs. Um, so ISTPs are particularly weak against ENFPs and that can be a serious problem. Uh, for example, actually, uh, a, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of ours, Alex, uh, his father is an ISTP and owns a very successful uh, business. And he hired this office manager who is an ENFP. Well, that ENFP started marionetting this ISTP. And now that ENFP is pretty close to having majority share in that company. And even though the ENFP doesn't even do any work and really has no value except for just random secretarial work and being like good at sales. And the ISTP is completely weak against that attack, even though his children is constantly you know, trying to warn their father from the ENFP, but the ENFP is so slick and the ENFP's got like nice suit on, totally dressed up and, and got that really awesome first impression that ISPs are weak against. And there's no SJs present to protect the uh, ISPs. Um, even if they have like, like, so for example, uh, their mother is actually an SJ, but she's an ESFJ. And that ESFJ, you know, probably isn't going to warn about the ENFP per se. Uh, so it, it can be an issue there. So it, it just basically, to answer the question, um, it just means that ISTPs and, I, um, and ISFPs are open to extroverted intuition manipulation more than anyone. Uh, so... Yes. So that basically means we have no sense of morals. We lack moral behavior. We lack principles. We do not live our life by principles. Principles are kind of like rules or little internal little mini standards of rules that we have within ourselves. Yes, we can still have personal standards based off of logic or ethics, you know. Well, ethically speaking, my standard is, is that I don't want to make that person feel bad or I don't want to do this thing because it would harm other people. But we're totally cool doing this thing if it harms ourselves, right? That's what FI Trickster does. It actually puts us more into harm's way personally, and we're okay with doing things that may potentially harm ourselves, uh, which can be seen as immoral behavior, like, for example, having illicit sex, drugs, uh, basically all the things that I didn't do while I was in Vegas, right? Gambling, for example, uh, that's just an example, you know, but if it, it, but if it got to a point where us having illicit sex or us uh, doing drugs or gambling in Vegas was to harm another person and not just be like our thing, then we would have a problem with it. Then our humanity would kick in. But if it's just us involved, not going to happen. 
uh, it's it's just not going to happen at all because uh, we don't we really don't care. We just don't care about how we feel because we're not aware of it and we don't have principles. And it really frustrates FE heroes and FE parents because it's like they're trying to emotionally develop us all the time uh, because it's like, oh, you know, they don't have principles. I'm trying to build principles. And as hard as they try, they'll never build up principles in us. I'm sorry. Like, get over it. It's not going to happen. So... I mean, it is what it is. Uh, so stop trying. Like all you NFJs or SFJs out there, uh, yeah, don't do it. Like it's a waste. Yeah, I just give up. Like seriously, uh, I don't need I don't need moral training or training in, in how to be a moral human being. If you want me or Alex, for example, an ENTP or an ESTP to behave morally, you have to surround us with moral people you have to surround us with fi users because we latch on to that fi and then our fe child will absorb that fi kind of like you know a vampire you know and we'll just clench our teeth and sink our teeth into the fi user and absorb their moral principles and that within our soul it becomes ethics because then we're more concerned about letting down that fi user which provides us a mental boundary with which we can live in and that way we have that boundary because we do not want our we don't want our behavior to harm that fi user because we know that fi user is very sensitive to that right and because they're sensitive in that way that basically means okay great uh, you know, so it, it's kind of like when people store memories and other people as a totem with extroverted sensing, you could say that an FI user is our emotional moral compass, our emotional totem, right? And they basically carry our heart for us. They are our heart totem and, uh, you know, and, and our humanity is actually being drawn from them or drawn from the FI users in our life. And we, we often go to them and be like, hey, well, how do you feel about this? Because we are trying to check in with the FI user. Hey, what are your principles? What, what principles do you have with this particular situation, et cetera? And that's basically why it works. You know, It just goes to show that not everyone has moral behavior. And it's funny because I actually, I didn't respond to a comment, but I saw a comment on the channel today where someone's like, you know, uh, you having bad morals, you know, that's actually a problem. You know, having such a high moral standard is not a problem. And this was done on like one of the INFJ uh, lectures. And I'm just like laughing to myself. It's like, okay, you obviously don't understand how it works because where there is a lack of morals, there is higher ethics. Where there's a lack of ethics, there's higher morals. No one human being uh, in their ego versus their shadow, et cetera, has like both. You can't. You can't do that. And even then, the only ones that get remotely close are F parents, ESFPs, ENFPs, funnily enough, and uh, INFJs and ISFJs. It's because their parent function and their critic function both have uh, F functions. So it's kind of like they have a little bit more mastery over F-related decision-making, feelings-based decision-making, because they have that mastery there. And uh, uh, yes, yes, Jason, F parents. Nice. Uh, so based on that, it's, it's, it's a situation you just got to be aware of, uh, you know, and it goes the same with thinking as well. Like from a thinking standpoint, if you have a T parent and a critic parent, those types have actually a wider mastery of thinking decisions than the others. So that would be ESTPs, ENTPs, INTJs, and ISTJs. Those four types actually end up having 
more mentally available from them from a cognition standpoint uh, than most of the other types uh, from that standpoint because of how responsible the parent is and how insanely responsible the critic is. Okay, yes, you could make an argument that, okay, well, what if there's a T function in the hero and the nemesis? You know, uh, yes, you could make that argument. The thing is, though, because those functions are actually more foreground instead of background because they're more optimistic, it kind of takes a bit more mental energy to use the nemesis in that way. And there's more of a harder shift when using your nemesis function in a positive way than when you're just default using your hero because your hero is so powerful and just having to shift down in that way, it's even harder. But it's actually easier to shift down from a parent function to a critic function and oscillate between both of them uh, to be able to use them for decision-making, right? And that's why there's kind of more of a, uh, you know, a T and F thinking mastery because in that regard, because you're able to draw more uh, from the F or the T spectra uh, for decision-making. So I hope that makes sense. Right. Um, oh, which, by the way, uh, Tony just mentioned that uh, your voice is not coming in. So is that true? Oh, I'm not actually. Try that. Is that better? Because like it's not. Hold on. Let me let me actually adjust the sound here, because if that's how it is. Input device, output device. There, there we go. Okay. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead and say something now. Okay. Can you guys hear? Can you guys hear him now? If you guys are watching the YouTube live stream, just put in a note in Discord if you can hear my voice. Okay. Cool. I'm glad we got that figured out because that's. Uh... Yeah, I'm actually going to read that question again. Yeah, please do. So. Uh, this is from uh, an INFP, by the way. So should a person improve their shadow functions? If so, how and where should we begin? And the quote from Jung is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. What does Jung mean by the unconscious in this quote? Is it related to the shadow functions? I would say that it definitely is uh, related to the shadow functions, uh, but as far as me being able to comment specifically on what Jung means in that regard, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and that's because I maintain that uh, the Jungian depth psychology or the Jungian analytical psychology community has kind of evolved a little bit beyond the scope of what Jung had initially thought out with the different sides of the mind. And because of that evolving, I'm not entirely sure that quote 
uh, applies in the same context with which we're talking about the shadow functions nowadays. Nowadays, now that's not to say that the attitudes of the of the shadow functions are not prov provided, you know, by by Jung, you know, as as like the root leader, you know, of this uh, uh, form of science. But uh, I would say that today's current definitions potentially don't match to that, and because of that, uh, because you know, it's just kind of. It's just kind of grown and it's kind of advanced over the last hundred years, you know. I mean, sue me. Like it, it's, it's just kind of how it is, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you can even make the argument like with Sir Isaac Newton and uh, the laws of physics. A lot of physicists would argue that uh, even Newtonian physics is still pretty limited and and missing in certain areas, right? Uh, it's it's a it was a great start and it got everyone going in the right direction, but uh, it wasn't the end all be all solution, and I maintain that. A good portion, not not a majority, and not all of Jung's work is actually starting to get to that point where it's becoming a bit more antiquated with every passing day. And the as we're able to research more and understand the science at a deeper level, uh, we're getting to a point now where uh, things are becoming more clear. And uh, because we're you know, as the Greek philosophers would say, because as we're able to like define things a little bit more. Uh, we're actually getting further and further away from the original uh, definition, etc. So, uh, based so how, does, how does somebody like uh, control their shadow and make it useful for them? Like, I know you mentioned a lot of us drop into our shadow in our adolescence, which was definitely true for me, and I think true for you as well. Could you yes. touch on that a little bit? Yes, uh, it really it really comes down to mastery of the gateway functions and the gateway function into uh, the shadow is the nemesis function. Um, so for me, that's extroverted intuition. For you, that's introverted sensing. And it's where a human being's worry exists. Uh, so I have introverted, I said extroverted intuition, I'm sorry, introverted intuition. I have introverted intuition nemesis. So I'm constantly worrying about my own future every single day of my life. I am so worried about my future all the time. So what I end up having to do is go to my inferior function and have some aspiration with my inferior function, which is introverted sensing. So I have to be more open to putting myself out of my comfort zone and the, and the introverted sensing as an inferior function, introverted sensing as a function, it basically is all about being a source of faith, right? Uh, faith is defined by uh, certainty of things hoped for uh, and uh, or evidence of things uh, hoped for and certainty of things unseen, right? Which is basically extroverted intuition, introverted sensing uh, loop, right? So in order to get over my worry, I have to basically have faith that regardless of what obstacle comes in front of me with my introverted intuition, uh, I will be able to get through that obstacle, whatever may come down the road, right? And uh, that allows me to get over, you know, my worry, as it were. And what that does is that unlocks the shadow's ability to become actually more useful in that regard. Now, that's that's a very positive thing. And so, for example, a lot of people accuse me of being an INTJ. A lot of people accuse me of being an ENTJ uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, we've all read the comments. Uh, we've seen other YouTubers actually make uh, their own videos about me uh, being that way, uh, for example. And uh, it, it's interesting because... 
they're so they're so quick to type me based on the MBTI letters, and none of them, not a single one, has even used the Berenzian model of temperaments multiplied by uh, interaction styles. It's like this community is the only one that's remotely open to doing that for some reason, which is very frustrating to me. But I understand it's kind of it's kind of foreign, it's kind of eclectic, it's kind of just not it's not mainstream. Uh, so mainstream typists have that issue there. So, but the shadow. How, how do you gain mastery over the shadow? How do you integrate it more with yourself? It really comes down to the nemesis function and getting over your worry, right? Uh, once you do that, and once you're like no longer worried or you're, you're, um, or you're, getting, you're bringing something extra down to your ego into your shadow to help you get over your worry, which is usually gained through maturity, right? It takes, it takes time. Like for example, introverted sensing, and I'm just using this as an example because it's my uh, inferior function. Because I've suffered a lot in my life, uh, I have more experience and I have proof. I have proof, mental proof to myself within memory that I have gotten through obstacles that have come in my way. So it allows me to have more faith that I am going to get over my uh, worrisome future, basically, which puts my NI nemesis at rest in terms of... Uh, you know, the worry that it has. So it allows me to use my INTJ shadow more. And that's why I'm very organized with what I do. That's why I use the whiteboard. I have a lot of systems in place. Uh, I have been told uh, by my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, uh, that uh, I absorb information faster and can categorize that information faster than any human being he's ever met. And uh, based on that, I just have... Uh, you know, it, it's super quick and I can get really organized. And I've seen other ENTPs and they're not as systematic as I am, but I have seen ENTPs grow over time as they gain additional experience with their introverted sense and help them get over their worry uh, provided by their INTJ shadow that they actually become more organized. And uh, it, what this does is actually allows them to finish things, right? So I'm a starter type. And a lot of things as a starter type, it gets really half-baked, but like running this YouTube channel, for example, running this community, uh, starting this business, et cetera, with where it's been able to go, I'm actually executing and I'm actually finishing things. And that's because I've been able to manage the worry as a, as a result of my nemesis function. Now, the other part of your question is, okay, yeah, so abuse and trauma in your life can put you, you know, into your shadow and you could be stuck in your shadow. In those situations, when you do get stuck in your shadow, you actually become more accustomed to using your nemesis function for positive and negative things. And because of its continued use, uh, because you have more practice and you have more practice to it, that also gives you additional advantages to integrate your shadow. So suffering in your life that may have put you in your shadow in your youth, and by the time you got away from your family or your society or your church or whoever, whatever was providing that social trauma, that human interaction trauma, or maybe it was physical abuse, whatever kind of trauma in your life, and you're away with it, and your mind has had time to heal over time, and you'll come out of your shadow and actually go back into your ego where, uh, where it belonged, for example. Once that happens, you actually realize that you were so practiced with your shadow that you actually retain a lot of your shadow's traits and you're actually able to use them uh, more often uh, than, than other people of your type. So this is actually what we call the benefit of suffering. If you've suffered in your life and you've been through a lot of things, uh, 
like you, yes, you would have gained wisdom. We talk about in our human nurture uh, lectures, but uh, from a human nature standpoint, it actually makes you more integrated as a human being. Uh, you know, the more that you've suffered. Now, of course, this is when the INFPs will be chiming in about right about now. And it's like, well, suffering just makes me shut down and I'm just not in the mood to uh, do anything. And this is not a good experience for me. So I'm just going to throw up my hands and give up, you know, and of course, ISTJs would probably be standing right next to them with that as well. And ENFPs and potentially even ESTJs uh, within that quadra, they may all have that point of view. But every single one of them eventually eventually will admit that because of all of the adversity that they have faced in their life, uh, they have been able to get over, you know, that immaturity and actually become more integrated. So over time, though, it may cause people to throw their hands up and give up, especially STJs and NFPs, uh, they will really rise above it like phoenixes, and then they'll have even more mental mastery than before. And that's, that's literally what happened to Robert Greene. As he explains in his book, The 50th Law, which is a book about fearlessness. And if you haven't read that book yet, I highly encourage you to do that um, because he's an INFP and he had a similar experience uh, where he just had to he threw his hands up and he basically just gave up because uh, either he was too afraid or it just wasn't working out for him. And there was some trauma involved. And then all of a sudden he realized because he's gotten through so much previously that he actually really does have the stuff to make it happen. And as a power and art of seduction are probably the most Machiavellian, but the rest of his work is I wouldn't qualify as Machiavellian at all. Uh, you know, as, as something. Touched on human nature and nurture. Because the next question is from an INTJ and they ask how, about the difference between human nature and nurture. If I understood well, you suggest that types are embedded in the genetic code of everyone. So no matter what happens in your life, you will always remain the same type. Do you have specific reasons to think that? And in that case, at what age could you recognize the type of someone? If you see a baby, could you more or less infer his or her type? Okay. Also, let's say, well, he has the last part here. Let me just finish. Also, if let's say both of your parents are INTPs, would you also expect the baby to be an INTP? No, I, no, I have never said that type is genetic, not even once. And where is that even coming from? I, I don't know. Here's my position on this. I have technically two positions. Um, the one is my first position, and the second one is a position I came to just recently after having a very rough exchange with an INTJ. Uh, but uh, the the first position um, is that, uh, and this comes from my mentor. Uh, this is not me. Uh, it's that type is basically literally the same thing as handedness. You're either left-handed or right-handed or ambidextrous or whatever. It's handedness. Genetics has nothing to do with it. Now, there are a lot of studies and a lot of arguments where saying, okay, we may be able to prove genetically that it is linked to type, but it's not. And the reason why that research is not good enough is because of epigenetics. Uh, epigenetics basically means that, for example, every bite of food that you take, this is just an example using food, changes your genes in real time. So if your genes are actually changing within a preset boundary, of course, within you know the total genome of, of the human race, but also your specific puzzle piece of the genome itself, because it has the ability to change and adapt in real time, how can we even claim that our type uh, is, uh, you know, uh, 
in that direction, you know? And yeah, I understand that uh, people could argue, you know, oh, hey, maybe it's just the expression of genes that could have something to do with, uh, with type. No, 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 no. I, I disagree with that as well. It's, it's not, it's not attached to, to genes. And, and it makes sense that SE inferior would be asking this question because, uh, you know, they're so, and eventually they, they do get mastery of the physical environment, but almost every time I've been asked about genes and type, it's always been an INTJ asking that question or an INFJ asking that question. So I'm not really surprised. Now, Let's talk about position two, because position one is handedness. And, and it basically, type is literally nothing more than preference. You prefer to use one hand or another. You prefer to be one type over another. Uh, so let's, let's see if this is going to work here. Let me, adjust, let me adjust my screen appropriately. So I will actually whiteboard this for everyone. Can you all see me just fine? Cool. Yeah, we can see. All right. So... Here's the thing. Uh, you know what? Let's uh, let's use let's use NTJs. Um, let's use NTJ slash SFP as a quadra. Okay, so we have ENTJ, we have INTJ, and we have uh, uh, ESFP, and we have ISFP. This represents a quadra. What does that mean? A quadra basically means that these types all have the same cognitive functions. They are all TE users, they are all NI users, they all have SE, and they all have FI, okay? So because they have these four cognitive functions, all four of these types have the same cognitive functions and their ego, basically, this makes them a quadra. The difference is that these functions are just in a different order for these four types, okay? So this is your quadra. So currently, okay, so I, I need to like put a disclaimer here. So here's the disclaimer on position two. Position two basically is a theory. This is a theory. This is a working theory that we have within the community that we're not exactly 100% sure on. There's evidence for this. We haven't been able to prove it yet. I am confident that uh, as some certain tools will be released in the near future to be able to gather the data that uh, um, uh, that were that, that are going to be released uh, in the wild here, uh, probably within the next year or so, maybe two years out, uh, we'll be able to gather the data to actually prove or disprove this uh, theory. But uh, this is—I'll just share with you the the hypothesis that we have within the community right now. So. So let's say uh, uh, you have a uh, you have a human being, okay? So we have a human being right here, um, and this this human being is a child, okay? And they are born with this quadra. So uh, you know, so they are either an NTJ or an SFP, you know, uh, that they have developed uh, pretty quickly. Now, so the the hypothesis is that uh, as a child. Uh, the hypothesis is that as a child, you start off with a quadra and your quadra can be anything. And your mind literally, this child's mind is literally oscillating between preferring these four types as they grow. Um, I have observed this with my own children. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, for example, and both of them have uh, exhibited this. So, for example, uh, my son, he's an INFJ, 
Uh, the first type that I was able to, you know, type him as initially was ISTP. And he, uh, which ISTP shares ESTP, INFJ, ENFJ, right? They share those four types uh, specifically, uh, you know, within this quadra. So that's my son's quadra. And I initially typed him as an ISTP. And he was super mega ISTP uh, growing up. And then uh, we, <laughs> we were technically homeless at the time. Uh, and he was in ISTP mode when we were no longer homeless. He, and we, and we got, we got back on our feet and we were living in, uh, in a house uh, in town at the time he became very ESTP and he was super ESTP. He was very direct. He was very control oriented, very uh, going at his own pace, uh, very initiating with people. Uh, there were times when, I'd be talking out on the back porch with uh, my cousin or some other family members and whatnot. And he would come out just walking, you know, as, as a, as a small child, like, like a two year old or like a one and a half or two year old. And then he would just come out and he'd basically say hi to us. And then he'd just hang out with us. And he wasn't really necessarily trying to be like around me. Cause he was a bit more independent that way. He just really liked to extrovert. And it was a really, really big deal. However, an event happened in his life shortly thereafter that changed him. And that is when his sister was born. When his sister was born, uh, uh, shortly thereafter, he had an additional change again. And he went INFJ mode big time. Uh, and he went from not really being an expert and being so concerned and not really as more about the intention as he just basically decided to elect himself a more of a caregiver-esque uh, support role for his sister, right? And he started to support uh, his sister in that way. And it's been that way ever since. And I've been keeping track of him. We don't know necessarily for sure when the ego is solidified because the theory goes is that you're a child, you start off in a quadra and you can oscillate into any of these four types within your quadra before it's solidified. And then by the time you come of age or at whatever X amount of time, we don't know what it is. We just don't know yet that your ego as a child will solidify and then boom, that is your ego and then it's done. However, there is a caveat and here's the caveat. The caveat is trauma. So let's, let's talk about me now. Let's talk about my personal experience with this. Uh, so when I was a little kid, I was super mega behind the scenes, mega shy and everything, constantly concerned about personal safety and being comfortable. I'd even sleep on my belly, which is a sign of an SI user. Just so you guys know, like a, a baby sleeping on their belly is basically an SI user um, if they have that preference. So I was, I was mega SI in that regard. I, I even remember, I, I even slightly remember thinking this way and thinking about how I had to protect things, right? And, uh, and I even had like ESFP shadow. I know I had ESFP shadow because I had this horrible habit of kicking cats, for example, as a small child. And uh, my mother did not like that very much and, and introduced me to the paddle uh, as a result of uh, my bad habit of kicking uh, felines. Um, but I was very uh, ISFJ uh, oriented. And then eventually, all of a sudden, trauma started getting involved in some way, shape, or form. And I started having negative experiences as a small child. And this came uh, largely because uh, I ended up uh, having my experiences uh, kind of removed. Um, so if I started off as an ISFJ, 
um, you know, in that regard. And, uh, and I'm part of this uh, quadra, essentially, you know, it wasn't really much, you know, like events happen and change. So for me, uh, it wasn't necessarily tr trauma. Cause when I say the word trauma, I don't mean like trauma just in the negative sense. Uh, Cause in the positive sense, um, it, there's like the positive version of trauma, like something really, really good happened. So like for my son, his uh, sister was born and it, it wasn't traumatic in a negative way. It was more of in a positive way. And he elected himself like someone who's going to be super caring for his little sister. So he went INFJ mode to meet that need as a child. So he basically aspired as his little ESTP side and went into his uh, uh, subconscious where he's remained ever since. And he's an INFJ who's watching out for his little sister. And he still does to this day. I mean, this child would literally like she'd fall asleep and they'd be taking a nap together in the same room and then he would wake up but he would not leave the room because he didn't want her to feel alone until she woke up even if she was asleep for another hour he would stay there and sit quietly or he'd walk around and get some toys and play very quietly not to wake her and then after she woke up he then would take her and then they would both leave the room right and this is literally what my son does it, this is normal for him right so he's super infj mode as a result of doing that and he struggles with guilt and he struggles with feelings of worthlessness and uselessness. And he's always constantly, you know, told me a few times that sometimes he just doesn't feel good enough. And this is a seven-year-old telling me, right? So uh, based on um, so based on that, uh, you know, for me, uh, I ended up uh, getting really, really bored. ISFJs, uh, this is going to sound crazy or maybe it's not, I don't know, but ISFJs, don't get bored. And for me, boredom became a problem. And my mind, I just got super bored. Why did I get bored? I got bored because my mother would take me to the church and on Monday morning, and uh, we would be there by ourselves all day doing office work. And then the next day, they would have choir practice, which my mother was on. So we were back at the church doing that. Well, someone else was handling the office. And then, and then after choir practice was over, then she'd be teaching youth dance practice and we would be there all day long. And a lot of the, so all the morning and all of the afternoon, basically we were there on Tuesdays and then Wednesday, we'd go back to church again for midweek service. And then on Thursday, uh, we would go back again for another dance practice with the youth. And then on Friday, we'd go to what they'd call righteous party at uh, the pastor's house. And we'd all be like hanging out at the pastor's house. So it was basically like church again. And then on Saturday, we would just devote all of our time to chores. And then on Sunday, it was church again at six for six hours. And then we'd do it all over again. And basically it's like, wow, my family literally worships church and I'm by myself all the time way too by myself all the time to the point where I have had so much solitude as this ISFJ child that my batteries became so overly charged with mental energy that I just popped. And when I popped, I went into my subconscious, went full on ENTP mode as part of this quadra. And then I was the ENTP. Now I was the ENTP. I was very crafty. My parents did not actually like they did not really appreciate that very much. Uh, I even remember my parents uh, accusing me of manipulating the children, taking advantage of them, organizing three or four way trades to try to manipulate the other children. They banned me from trades. And, um, and then apparently like lying and being insincere became such a big problem as the NTP. So my parents basically, uh, and this is where trauma comes in, uh, in a negative way, basically at that point, uh, 
were no longer okay with me being an ENTP anymore. And when that happened, my mind then pushed me into my shadow. And I was an INTJ. I was an INTJ until I was about 26 years old. And it wasn't until I had a TI child from an INFJ absolutely criticize me with everything he had basically and destroyed and verified all of my belief systems for me to the point where I didn't have anything else left to believe in. And I had to rediscover my entire belief system on my own, right? And because of that, it allowed my mind to heal and I was able to go back into my ENTP ego at the time. Now, understand though that... Uh, Changes in a child's life will cause them, like big changes, like siblings and whatnot, uh, it will cause that child to move between the four sides of this quadra. But if trauma happens, instead of going to another part of the quadra, it will go into the shadow of the specific type. So let's say that this was an ENTJ child, and then an event happened, like they had a, a little brother born, and then they go ISFP for whatever reason, because they were feeling like they were not getting enough... Uh, enough uh, uh, nurture from their parents. So they want to be by themselves. They had to be more independent. So they went ISFP mode, but then trauma had struck and then they went directly in their shadow and they're stuck in their ESFJ shadow for a long time, right? So it's kind of like two systems, okay? The primary system is the quadra with the four sides and it just turns and uh, whatever it is, uh, primary at the time based on the events in the child's life, based on the human nurture of the child's life, not the nature. The nurture is impacting the child's uh, ego in the quadra. But if the nurture turns into trauma, then it will get, they will, they will stick on one of the, whichever ego that it's stuck on at that point in time, it'll go into the shadow. This can be bad. This can be bad from, for a lot of reasons, because if they do not have that trauma end by the time that they are that they come of age. They will be stuck in their shadow past puberty, and when that happens, when they're stuck that uh, you know past puberty, when they go back in their ego, that ego is who they are. They they have completely lost out on any other opportunity to be any of the four types in the quadra that they first had access to as a result of that trauma. Now, if the trauma ends before they go into puberty, uh, the rest of the theory basically states they still have a chance to go into the other sides of the quadra as they develop before their, their ego fully forms. But if the trauma happens through and past puberty, which is what happened to me, for example, uh, then once I come out of the shadow, me coming out of the shadow, and that's my ego, that's my ego, and that's it. There's no chance to be able to change into the quadra. So that's kind of what I call position two and position two from the standpoint of, hey, you know, uh, this is kind of how a child's mind develops and parents are going to definitely need to be aware of this. I'm going to be doing a lecture on this uh, process in a lot more in depth and kind of show how the stimuli adjust things. And I'll have a nice little uh, Ouroboros or infinity uh, shaped uh, uh, visual set piece that shows how these wheels are basically turning. Um, and how um, each, uh, each of the four quadra has its own little shadow wheel attached to it. And then how as trauma or these events happen in children's lives, how the combinations of their ego can actually change. And then what happens when it gets fully formed essentially. So does that answer your question, Alex? Yeah, um, a bit too much. Fair enough. Um, do, um, do you want to tell people what you were trading at church? <laughs> 
Pokemon cards, man. Uh, I uh, had a very nice little business. Do you know how many foil Charizards I had? It was uh, <laughs> it was pretty dope. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so the next question and this is from another INTJ. Can you discuss con the concepts of the anima in the case of men and the animus in the case of women and how both unconscious sides vary according to the MBTI? And they put in parentheses, I know you don't believe in Myers-Briggs. Yeah, I don't believe in Myers-Briggs. I don't care about Myers-Briggs. I don't care about the MBTI. I don't care. All the MBTI is is a test. That's it. The only thing the MBTI is is just a test. There's nothing else. It is just a test. A test about Jungian analytical psychology uh, is the anima, basically. If you are a, a member of the male gender, then your subconscious is the anima. And the anima basically means that your subconscious is the opposing gender of your ego. So I'm an ENTP ego, which means my ISFJ subconscious is a female ISFJ. So the female ISFJ's priorities, because we're talking about this right now in season 13 with personal sovereignty and the sacred genders, uh, the uh, the anima, because it's a female, you know, versus the animus, because it's a male in women, the female anima, the ISFJ, focuses on the little things of life, while my ego focuses on the big things in life. And it's, and it's the same for women, just inverse, you know. Their ego is focused on the little things in life, but their animus, which is more masculine within their subconscious, focuses on the big things in life. And that's why we have this yin and yang equilibrium between our egos and our subconscious, especially when we're in relationship with the opposite sex, basically. And that's how it fits together like a puzzle. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So that, that's kind of like the fundamental difference in interpreting uh, you know, different types across genders. Yes, that is correct. Of, they manifest themselves in different ways. So, like, let's use ESTP as an example. What would an ESTP female look like in comparison to me? So, an ESTP female, uh, while having a lot of similar traits, uh, you know, instead of having like this, you know, vast wolf pack of men who's able to change, uh, you know, like a municipality or a community or whatnot, or or being like in charge of a construction crew or whatever. Uh, that ESTP female would be more focused on, you know, smaller things like taking charge of, uh, you know, taking charge of the kingdom or taking a charge, uh, taking charge of the home in some way, shape or form uh, or organizing her girlfriends to go do something together, etc. cetera. Uh, I being, uh, you know, I remember when I was in the, the MOPS program and I know some uh, of the moms that were in the MOPS program at church growing up, uh, I know some of their types and a lot of the ones that were in charge of that were actually ESTP women, believe it or not. And uh, now uh, from, you know, a male standpoint, like they're, uh, they get so mega preachy with their INFJ subconscious, insanely preachy uh, to the point where they're challenging other men with their INFJ subconscious. It's like, Hey, I'm willing to take the risk. Hey, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for my ideals. Why aren't you willing to? And that's because you have this INFJ subconscious sage on the mountain that's completely getting in the face of other men because the female is using the animus to actually provide challenge to the males, basically, to the point where even females are accusing males of not being as manly as they should be. And it's always coming from the animus within inside the female psyche, basically, accusing and providing challenge to the men in their lives to make them more manly because 
their fellow men in their lives, or maybe those men are not around other men uh, in their lives to be challenged by those men so that they continue to grow. So if a man becomes stagnant or whatnot, that's what happens. The female uses her animus basically to get in the way of the man and accuse him of stagnating or challenge him in that way so he can get back on the path to growth. Awesome. So this, this next question is kind of weird, but it was asked by one of our friends. So I'm going to put it in here. And he says, uh, why is it popular in modern culture to destroy the ego? And why is ego needed? So the, I, my, my main question on that question is like, what, what do you necessarily mean by ego? But I'll just let you take it there from a Jungian perspective, Chase. Sure. So from a Jungian perspective, uh, from a Jungian perspective, uh, the ego basically is the the I am. And I actually explained this in my lecture, uh, The Way of the Human Being, which I did a few lectures ago. Uh, you can watch that where I explain kind of how important the ego is uh, to society. A lot of people think that the ego is the problem with the human race and that the ego is the source of the human condition and that the ego uh, is why we have so much pain in the world. Uh, that's actually false. That is 100% uh, false. The ego is not the problem. The problem is the superego. The superego uh, contains uh, the human condition or sin nature by various church uh, uh, circles, etc. But that that's the problem. Uh, that is the problem with the ego. Uh so based on that, uh, based on that, when you have people like Gordon White and Jason Louvre calling out the ego, we need to get rid of the ego. We have to annihilate the ego. The ego is the problem within the psyche of mankind. Uh, no, it's not. Because if you get rid of the ego, what's going to happen is the superego is going to take over. And that will basically turn our world into hell, where the entire race is basically enslaved and treated like cattle. And there is no such thing as personal sovereignty anymore. Uh, destroying the ego gets rid of personal sovereignty entirely. And you are left with a world of slavery effectively, uh, where uh, even the little guy would not be able to challenge the collective, or even the collective itself will not even be able to challenge the uh, the powerful in any way, shape, or form. It would be an absolute covert or even overt totalitarian worldwide society at that point in time if the ego was to be so derided and so disregarded in that way. We can't allow that to happen. Now, based on that, uh, why? Why is that? Well, it's because when when a person starts out, it's they're immature, right? When they start out life, they're immature, but their ego is insanely powerful. It is insane because it's the demon and the demon has like these super crazy supernatural powers. And it literally is the nuclear option, right? The superego. But the thing is, the ego per se is not necessarily as strong to deal with the superego because the superego basically forms during when a when a uh, human being comes of age basically and that or uh, adolescence and um, that's why they all of a sudden your children turn into different people and they're starting to rebel and explore things is because the human condition has just been activated in their minds basically stronger than it ever has been before because as they're entering into adulthood they have to deal with those mental changes within their psyche. And the superego is insanely strong, but the ego is still immature because a mature, wise ego that is well-developed would be able to keep the superego in check. And even as a human being, as they gain even more uh, wisdom, especially wisdom, knowledge, experience, uh, life experience, especially when it comes to suffering, uh, 
the ego becomes super strong, super high quality, super capable, so capable that not only is it able to have mastery per se over the super ego within themselves uh, to a point, uh, but they actually eventually can, a human being can become potentially so wise that they could coexist with the ego or the superego. They could coexist with the superego within themselves. And that is basically one of the prerequisites uh, uh, for enlightenment, uh, basically, because enlightenment, basically, all it is is the four sides of your mind are completely integrated and you're able to access all four sides of your mind on command and able to last really long inside the four sides of your mind more than usual. It's kind of like Goku and Gohan and Vegeta and Trunks training in the hyperbolic time chamber before uh, fighting Cell in Dragon Ball Z. And uh, they have like a year of training within a day. And Goku's point to Gohan is like, we need to stay in Super Saiyan mode as long as possible because uh, by staying in Super Saiyan mode as long as possible, we'll be able to, you know, become stronger, etc. It's kind of similar with the the ego versus super ego, you know, or, or mastering the four sides of your mind. If you could stay in your subconscious longer, if you could stay in your shadow longer and actually practice in that way, you become way more integrated as you gain mastery over your uh, gateway functions, as you gain wisdom, etc. And then you become a more integrated human being, which gets you closer and closer to enlightenment in that regard. And enlightenment in the context of Jungian depth psychology, basically, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, Eastern philosophies, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I am not an expert in Eastern philosophy, and I've only just recently, uh, you know, really gotten even more deeper than I was because I'm studying Bruce Lee right now. Uh, you know, uh, like a lot of Buddhist uh, writers would claim that even, you know, that the ego is is the problem, and they're wrong. That it is not true, uh, and that in order to gain enlightenment, you have to abandon the ego entirely. No. No, you have to grow and mature your ego. You have to gain wisdom, right? Wisdom is the most valuable substance on the planet. Avoiding the ego doesn't gain you wisdom. It doesn't. Uh, and, and, and why is that? That's because people who are against the ego are constantly talking about the ego being, you know, the source of absolute selfishness. And no, that's not. It's the superego because Martin Luther basically said this about the superego. Sin nature, the superego, is basically when the self bends in on the self, right? And that's basically what that is. If your ego is strong and it's mature and you have wisdom, it's so strong that the, that the superego can't replace it, Right. And it can't, you know, get in that um, get in that position. However, not everyone can. And this is where I go in the altered carbon direction. Uh, you know, the older you get, if you are lacking in wisdom, and the older you get, the more corrupt your your superego becomes, the more stronger it becomes, and it could actually completely consume you as you get older. And this is why many philosophers have theorized. Um, why the human race potentially used to live a thousand years in lifespan, but now it's been cut to like 70 to 100 years potentially based on legends. Uh, and uh, that's because, uh, you know, as human beings would get older and older and older, they would just become more and more and more corrupt by the superego. Uh, and not every human being with such a long lifespan would actually prioritize uh, wisdom per se. So when we're talking about the gift of Iluvatar, which is basically death, um, death is actually technically a gift because 
bringing death so much closer to us and us having less time on this earth actually means that there is a lot more pressure on us to gain wisdom. And then as a result of that, uh, potentially have a higher chance of becoming enlightened and becoming integrated with the four sides of our mind. So that's basically how I would answer that question. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting the whole bending over, uh, over yourself metaphor, because if you put the chart on a piece of paper, like your cognitive functions, and you fold it twice, it's like the uh, super ego replaces the ego. Right, right. That's really interesting. So we are at 60 minutes right now, just so you know. Yeah, so we're probably going to go for about another 30 minutes, guys. So we're probably going to get like know, four or five questions left. Um, this one, this next one is from an INTP. Uh, and they say, I need to use my FI to write beautiful poetry. Writing puts me in a different headspace. Uh, it has to be sad feelings 99% of the time. Is that like a positive use of my superego? Uh, no, and that's not what's actually happening. Uh, I appreciate the question, though, uh, because I'll explain from personal experience how that actually manifests. Uh, so that's actually kind of an FE thing. What I do, uh, I, I mean, I, I used to write poetry all the time and it's always because I had some kind of muse or I had a totem around me who had feeling. Remember I talked about how FI users are basically totems. So I would actually uh, be playing music constantly by like an ISFP singing or even an INFP or an ENFP uh, or an ESFP singing, uh, you know, an ESFP woman or whatnot. And I was able to absorb the feelings of uh, that music basically with my Effie child. And then I was able to write fantastic poetry. And it was based on the feelings that I was getting on the songs that I had set up for my playlist, helped me determine the specific mood or motif of the poetry that I was writing at the time. And you can do this with Effie users. Uh, and it's really even more difficult with INTPs because they have, uh, they are one of the two types that have would have that technically have the least amount of feeling within their souls because they have FI demon and FE inferior, right? So it costs them so much more mental energy and so much more effort than everyone else to write poetry as a result, uh, which is why, you know, it would technically because at the uh, fourth function, the inferior function is still a pessimistic function. So it's no, it's obvious as to why there'd be more negative connotations in their poetry as a result, essentially. Uh, and that's, uh, yeah, that, that's how I would answer that question and just leave it at that. Yeah, this is going to sound crazy, but the, the last uh, poem that I wrote, uh, what I had uh, playing in the background uh, was Angels and Airwaves on repeat. So that's, and it was, and it was a very uh, positive uh, poem, if I do say so myself. That's awesome. Okay, I love this next question. I think you're going to love it too, and maybe I can chime in a little bit on this one. Uh, this is from an INFP. What do you do if you never have the opportunity to meet the types compatible to yours? And I think this means romantic compatibility. Uh, actually, everyone does kind of have the opportunity to meet those people. The problem is, is that they don't know how to type people. Uh, so they don't really know what's around them already. And not only that, they also have a hard time seeking out the specific people. Uh, if you're if you're looking for an STJ or an SFJ uh, and you want and 
you know, get in a relationship with them, you're going to find them basically, like, especially STJs, you're going to find them at a gym, right? You know, same thing with SPs, right? If you're trying to find relationships with fellow intuitives, et cetera, uh, from an intuitive standpoint, you'd want to go to intuitive things. And so, for example, I used to do this um, when I when I first. Well, OK, that's not true. Not when I was coaching people last year, uh, well, year and a half ago, what I would do is I would go to a meetup group called the Sacramento Politics and Philosophy Group, right? And then they actually had some drama there and split off across. But politics and philosophy discussion groups, especially on meetups, uh, you know, they're 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 like going to be a huge, uh, you know, you got the the fly zapper, you know, and it dies, etc., uh, attracting all the all the bugs. Those attract uh, humans like flies to his bug zapper, uh, essentially, or mosquitoes, in the same way that a hiking meetup would attract SPs and SJs. Okay, so if you're trying to find a relationship with an SP or an SJ, you need to get out. Uh, you need to work out. You need to uh, you need to go on these hiking meetups or these kayaking meetups or these camping meetups or whatever on meetup.com. Download the app. Just do it. Get over yourself. And that's basically how you're going to meet those people. And uh, you will get into a relationship with them super mega quick. If you're looking for intuitives, you will find them at discussion groups, uh, even uh, even like hokey psychology discussion groups and and whatnot which i have gone to because for some reason a lot of jungian uh, psychology groups are very occultic and end up being like tarot card readings and it's like but that was not even advertised on the meetup group and i find myself yeah it's like oh i want to discuss psychology and i show up and they're doing tarot card readings and i'm like what the hell and of course like half the room are INFJs and the other half of the room is NFPs. And it's like, what am I even doing here? And then I just leave, for example, you know, it, it, it's really frustrating. So that that's basically my advice. If you want to find, if you want to find a type there, there's techniques that you can do to find uh, someone to be in a relationship with. And, and it's interesting. Like I even, I even attracted an INFP one time uh, at, uh, you know, at this meetup group, and uh, she was constantly trying to email me and have conversations. And when I finally made it clear to her that I was not interested because I was in a relationship already, she ended up going for the next best dude on the list, which apparently was an INFJ there, even though an INFJ would have been better for her. But for some reason, she was way more attracted to me than that INFJ at the time. I don't know. Maybe that's because she respected me more than the other guy. I don't know. It's TE inferior. I mean, what are you going to do, right? So she ended up going with the other guy and then they got together and she actually moved in with him for like three months. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, she just left and uh, disappeared to like uh, Portland. I'm not even kidding. Uh, so, but again, these stories exist, uh, you know, uh, these stories exist to show you that, you know, you can utilize meetup.com to get to know people. At least you're not using a dating app. Like you don't have to use a dating app. Although I've had actually pretty good success with a dating app uh, within my relationships, but each person on the dating app is very well vetted uh, before I even, you know, go in that direction or even agree to go on it to on a date per se in that regard. Uh, but the most ideal way is meetup groups. And if again, if you're an SP or an SJ looking for an SP or an SJ, do meetup groups that have some kind of physical activity involved. If you want to find intuitives, 
do discussion groups. And if you don't, if you can't uh, find one, then create a discussion group. And guess what? I created a discussion group here in the Bay Area. If you're if you're here or you're watching this later or whatever, and you are in the Bay Area, you can join the Bay Area uh, uh, philosophy, politics, and psychology group right now on meetup.com. And we will be doing one to two meetups a month and uh, hanging out with everybody. And I'll be doing lectures or monologuing or actually just hanging out with people and answering questions. I have no idea. I'll probably drink a little bit of coffee while I do it, you know, cup of personality, right? So just that's that's literally what I would recommend for that person. Otherwise, you know, if you're not really sure what people's types are around you, then you need to master the type grid and be able to type people as you meet them without the use of a test. And besides, you shouldn't be trusting the results of a test anyway. So if, uh, let's say you haven't joined any groups or anything, but you have like a, a big workplace, would you recommend people date within the workplace never never i actually have a personal rule it's almost like a principle but i have a personal rule and uh that rule is never date somebody at work there's just too much risk and that's like an isfj subconscious thing because of the risks involved with that no way not something i would recommend not something i would do yeah it's surprising how common it is but i totally agree with you so okay we'll move on um uh, we'll fit in uh, as many questions as we can. So just make these answers as short as possible, Chase, because uh, I want to finish these out. So the next one is from an INTJ. How can a man show his nobility? Uh, he can show his nobility by mastering the four archetypes of the mature masculine. But in order for him to do that, he has to develop the four pillars of intimacy first. The four pillars of intimacy are... Take responsibility to meet your own needs, uh, develop your personal standards so that you are keeping yourself accountable for meeting your own needs, develop personal boundaries so that, so that other human beings are not inhibiting you from meeting your own needs, and then having personal goals. Once you have those four pillars of self-intimacy and you've developed a foundation of self-respect, you can begin the process of becoming king, warrior, magician, lover, which I am already uh, lecturing on in season 13 on the podcast and uh, the personal sovereignty uh, playlist uh, here on YouTube. Uh, that's bit, and then you, once you have King Warrior, Magician, Lover, uh, moderately developed, uh, you can uh, basically begin the process, you know, of like, for example, finding a woman, uh, etc. At that point in time, because you're attractive by then, because a man's nobility is what attracts women to men, right? Primarily, secondarily, you know, having bulging muscles and being super mega fit at the gym, yeah. That does attract women too, but it's a secondary. Uh, it's a secondary property that they're attracted to. While primarily they are attracted to nobility. That's why you can have like, I mean, I was at Vegas and I saw like these weird fat dudes uh, who were with insanely gorgeous women, and they were not escorts because there was. Uh, they both had like similar wedding rings and similar tattoos and whatnot, and that was awkward. But that's because he had a lot of nobility, and you could tell he had money. And I saw the car that he was driving. It was it was a pretty nice uh, Mercedes. Um, so, uh, but again, I get that people don't like it when I talk about material things, when I'm talking about nobility and manhood, but uh, material things does have a portion of it because material things is a is kind of one of the things that proves uh, that men are generative, but they can also be generative with their deepest gift because they have to find what their deepest gift is and their deep purpose in life. And then they could generate that and give that to others in a sacrificial manner, for example. Uh, but uh, yeah, 
yeah, thank you, uh, Luna Tasma, for saying that. Uh, you don't really have to be buff. It's not the primary thing that women care about, but for some reason men think it is because men are attracted to females or women primarily physically. So they think with man logic, mansplaining logic, uh, that uh, women must be attracted to men physically too, which is not true. Although statistically, it is even though it's still technically not true, it just seems truer or truthy if you're talking about SP versus SJ relationships because SP and SJ relationships are actually kind of a little bit shallower than, or at least they start out shallower than uh, than intuitive relationships, whereas intuitive relationships start out super, super, super mega deep, and then over time, those relationships grow a little bit shallower. And it's kind of interesting how the intuitives have their types of relationships and uh, sensors have their types of relationships, and they're just kind of going in different directions like this, and it's really cool to watch it's just as they mature. Like an example of this is, an ENTP starts out as super mega creepy and, and deep when they're immature and uh, they could be seen as lazy and partially depraved, almost similar in the same way that an ENFP could. But then as they get older, they actually start caring about things like physical activity and martial arts and hiking and whatnot. But if you look at an ESTJ, it's the exact opposite. Athletics is everything to them in their youth, but then things that are more philosophical, professoral, academic are more important to them in their, um, you know, in their later in their life. Again, an intuitive would be more academic earlier in life and then more physical and later in life. It's because human beings are kind of going these directions as they're developing their uh, opposing uh, subconscious, basically. So I think now would be a good time to mention uh, the upcoming thing that you have going on with Robert Glover. Oh, yeah. So... I encourage this in, this audience to pick up the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And no, I'm not getting paid to say that. Uh, no More Mr. Nice Guy is nice for women because it gives them a tool book with which they can criticize men in their lives with. And it's a really good tool for men so that it helps them achieve the mature masculine. It helps them develop the four pillars of self-intimacy so they could start going down the path of king, warrior, magician, lover to gain their nobility, which makes them most attractive to women, which makes them respectable because nobility is what gives a man his respectability in the same way that having a nice ass and a nice rack and a nice smile and super awesome hair uh, makes you know a woman look amazing because women in that uh, and desirable by men because it's not that – it's funny because women have this problem. They're like, oh, well, men are just really shallow about looks and shadow about – physique and it's like that has nothing to do with it actually when men see a beautiful woman that tells a man that that woman is responsible i'm not even kidding it's 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 a, it's a responsibility check men see beautiful women those beautiful women equal responsible in the eyes of men if they have the humility component to go with it because remember beauty equals prettiness plus humility so it's not good enough just for a woman to be pretty it's not good enough. They have to have the humility component along with it, and that equals beauty, and beauty is what men want, right? So uh, whereas, you know, like with men, it's, um, you know, it's it's nobility plus, uh, you know, maybe they have like their own like little beauty or prettiness, we'll say, their secondary prettiness with their primary nobility added together, and that equals, you know, the attractiveness, you know, for women, whereas women, beauty equals uh, prettiness plus, uh, you know, humility to give them their their respectfulness because men want to be respected primarily more so than women. Uh, that's why women can be in relationships longer when they're being abused because at least that man is more loving to them and they're willing to, you know, be more, more often be disrespected, whereas men are not willing to be disrespected at all. Uh, but they are willing to be kind of more often unloved, if that makes sense, especially by a couple of men. 
Yeah, so are you still going to be on the Rivera podcast with uh, Dr. Robert Glover? Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's that the point that I was trying to make. Um, I will be on the Grimerica podcast on August 1st with Dr. Robert Glover uh, discussing these things. So pick up the book, read it, and then tune into the podcast. And it'll be great uh, to have uh, one of my mentors, um, not like that I know him personally now because I don't, but uh, one of the people that have really majorly impacted me in terms of my journey for self-actualization and I highly recommend you tune in because maybe you might be able to learn something new for your journey to self-actualization. Yeah, totally. And, and uh, you actually turned the Gramerica guys on to his work, which is probably what got that whole ball rolling, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, so um, next question uh, from an ENTP. Is it possible for some folks to live as their shadow type for so long they normalize it as their main type? Also, what happens with these types? Considering that high stress is common, how would you recognize someone in their shadow functions? The answer to that is no. Uh, eventually, the ego will heal itself, and they will go back into their ego. And this is one of the reasons why we have things called midlife crises. Uh, that's where that comes from. It's usually it's so, the shift. So the man who kind of goes his whole life kind of in a daze, and then when they're 40, they get a red BMW. Have they just actualized their ego in a way? Have they been stuck in their shadow the whole time? Uh, if they're like an SP or an SJ, the answer, well, more so SP, but yes. Awesome. Okay, so next one is from an INTJ. Uh, how valid are subtyping systems, and do you think they are necessary? Subtypes. Is this an Enneagram question? Uh, well, Enneagram is next. A lot of people have asked about Enneagram on here and what you think about it. So we can kind of combine those. Um, but also, I think Dave Superpowers also has a subtyping system. And there are some other kind of like union people. Oh, like like ENTJ-A or whatever, that kind of stuff. I, I don't really care about that. I just don't. Um, because it's kind of like the DISC system. The DISC system, quite frankly, is just interaction styles. That's all it is. And, uh, you know, ENTPAs or like ENTJA, you know, that type of subtype system, it's like, okay, well, I'm taking a test that is helping me show how I'm more naturally inclined with my nature. Okay, fine. Okay. It, but they're not really accurate. It's super hard to map human nurture. Uh, we'll be able to with some cutting edge algorithms that uh, we have coming out probably within the next two years. And uh, we'll be able to map human nurture a lot more accurately. But when you have tests like these subtypes or the big five, for example, which are insanely nurture focused and based upon a lot of arbitrary um, um, criteria and metrics, and it's very rational. It's very beliefy. You know, it's all about we have these beliefs about people. And if they answer these questions, they're going to get these results because that's what we believe in when it's not actually based on logic or logos. It's very ethos oriented. That's when I just start to, like, not care. Um, luckily, the Enneagram is not as bad as that. But the Enneagram still kind of has a slant uh, in the direction of nature or uh, in the direction of nurture, it's very natural, uh, and it's not as uh, it's not as natural, I guess, from a nature standpoint. Which is why I don't really care to use the enneagram at all. I mean, it's a thing; people may find it useful. It's not remotely important or a priority to me. I just don't care that much because I want to get to the logos thing and the enneagram. Similarly to how the big five and the subtypes work, is more ethos-ish and 
TE critic just doesn't give a damn. TI parent cares about other things, and I'm going to go in that direction. And that's why I don't really talk about Enneagram that much or Big Five or subtypes. So, I mean, I, I kind of am resistant to the Enneagram because I don't want to learn another model, you know? Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, out of all the other types, I know we've talked about the color code and some other things. Like which, what are, which are the other personality psychology tests that you like outside of the uh, Jungian stuff? Um, well, I did true colors when I was sco in school. Um, Ty Lopez says that the Hexaco test is the best ever, apparently. Of course he would, because TE child is so ethos -y, and it's like the most ethos test I've ever seen, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, I really liked Strength Finders, even though Strength Finders is super neutral. I just kind of thought it was kind of fun just to have that. And, uh, a lot of people in multi-level marketing uh, companies or schemes, pyramid schemes, as people would say, use strength finders uh, for what they're doing. Um, but I, it, it was fun to me. But the thing is, is that because I already know type, it's like, wow, this is so limited. Why do I care? You know, I just, I, you know what I mean? So I just, I haven't really looked at other tests so much because I haven't. Okay. Okay. That's not true. There is one, there is one system actually that I really love. Um, and that's Voltology. I love Voltology. I have a few issues with it, but uh, the theory that you can look at someone's physical traits and find their cognitive functions uh, stack just by looking at their physical traits um, is very appealing. And I do believe it's true uh, for sure, because I have seen my mentors both do it, especially my first mentor. He is He's actually pretty skilled at it, actually. It's hard for me to do it because I'm an ENTP and I have SE demons. So picking up on physical traits of other human beings, I would have to spend a lot of time training myself to study that and, and, and type people based on physical traits using the Voltology system. But when using the Berenzian model, it's just easier and it's faster and it's more accurate and not as prone to error. I don't spend as much time on the Voltology method, but the Voltology method definitely has something to it because even before Voltology came out, my first mentor uh, who taught me Jungian analytical psychology um, when I was basically homeless, uh, he, uh, he had the capability and he was able to do it. And he showed me how certain cognitive functions matched to certain kinds of dress and certain postures and certain, it was, it was phenomenal and it was excellent. I just really lacked the ability to do it. Now over time, I can kind of do it as my SI inferior gains more data with people. And I can kind of see how those distinctions go over time. But for the most part, it's something I have to try really, 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 really hard for. But why am I going to bother going to all of the effort when I know the Berenzian model so quickly? And it's just like, ooh, interaction styles multiplied by uh, temperaments, done. And I can move on with my life because, you know, I'm a movement type. And because I'm movement, I just want to get there as quickly as possible and move on to the next thing, right? So, but yes, uh, I, I do like Voltology. Yeah, I remember when I, as an ESTP, was like, yeah, some of these types look the same you know, in their physical appearance. And you're like, finally, finally he gets it. Because your mentor was an ESTP, right? Yes, he was. He was an ESTP. Yeah. An ESTP who to this day thinks he's an ISTP. It's great. But, oh, that's uh, hilarious. Yeah. Oh, he's just trying to fix a car and having a lot of trouble, but still still trying to be an ISTP. Yeah, still trying to be an ISTP who has, like, the biggest nymphomania problem I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have one, actually two last questions. So one of them is, is my own, and then we have one more, and then the rest of the questions that we've 
logged from Discord will just push them to the next time we do this. That's right. Um, the, the thing I wanted to ask, this is my own question from what you said about multi-level marketing schemes. Um, these are things that have really troubled me, like watching my friends fall into them, and I know they bother you too. Um, what types are most likely to thrive in multi-level marketing, and what types are most likely to fall for it and be kind of a victim? Good question. Um, so SE parents and SI heroes. Um, well, okay. So the types that are the most likely to thrive in them are ENPs, Pathfinder types. Pathfinders are ENTPs and ENFPs uh, because they're able to look into the intentions of other people and basically twist people's fates or their wills and bend their the wills of other people to their will and manipulate will, basically. Manipulate desire, manipulate people's futures with extroverted intuition. Uh, and uh, because of that, that makes them super good at sales and uh, the best at sales. ENPs are the best at sales uh, by far. So they end up uh, leading the uh, MLM sphere with INJs as a close second because they have ENP shadows, essentially. Um, and the people that fall victim to it, uh, quite frankly, are people who have ENPs and INJs as their subconscious. And those are the people that fall into it. So that ISFJs, ISTJs, uh, as well as uh, ESFPs. And uh, even ESTPs, I have seen multiple times go in that direction. Uh, now, it can, and I, and I speak with personal experience because I got sucked into Advocare. My whole family got sucked into Amway at one point in time. And, uh, you know, Amway was partially owned by Tony Robbins at one point. Yeah, no kidding. I, I had no idea. But that guy is an ENFP, so that makes sense, right? So. Totally. Okay, so last question. I wanted to give the last question to Tony because uh, he's been such a help. So, uh, and Tony's an ESTP in the server, by the way. Um, and he asks, do SE users have the tendency to be more single-minded than uni users, or at least appear that way? Um, if we're comparing SE users to NE users, the answer is yes. But would I label an SE user uh, as single-minded? No, because as they see people around them change over time, they end up becoming even more open-minded over time because they're able just to see people rise and fall on their face or have success in their life. And they're able to pick pieces of what works with some people and what doesn't work from other people and then reach their own success as a result of being very observational. Uh, so an SE user is very open-minded, but they are limited to the data that's around them. They're limited to the experiences of other people around them. They're limited by the people around them. So if you put an SE hero or an SE user around unsuccessful people, they're more likely to be unsuccessful. So if an SE user notices that their friends are unsuccessful and they want to become successful, they need to surround themselves with successful people because then they'll get the benefit of the experience of those people around them. That's how expert sensing works. So they actually are technically as open-minded as extrovert intuition users, um, but they are limited based on uh, you know the people around them. You could even make the same argument about extroverted intuitives uh, because, um, you know, uh, 
because extrovert intuitives, they have to have experiences. Um, they, they have to have an open mind in order for extrovert intuition to even work and become masters of fate and masters of willpower and masters of other people's intentions, essentially. That's a requirement. So uh, comparing SE users to NE users directly, yes, NE users are more open-minded, I would say, than SE users, but that's because they don't have a choice. Uh, because extroverted intuition is limited based on how much experience the introverted sensing function has because they're on a yin and yang equilibrium axis with each other.